Whitney Lin and Till the Teeth created the installation Time Kills in 2023 for the Jack Straw New Media Gallery. I sat down with Whitney and Jonathan Rodriguez of Till the Teeth in the Jack Straw studio to talk about the sounds and images they used in their video installation and how they subvert the traditional tropes of still life. Whitney started us off by describing what it's like to be in the exhibit. So when you first walk in, it's black box space, dimly lit, and there's some theatrical lighting that hits a metal waiting bench, like the kind you might see at an airport or bus station. Um, Then there's three TVs that are on these easel stands, uh, and it's playing this three-channel video that's pretty fast Rapid cuts, uh, continuously changing. I don't know if there's anything else. That's all I got. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe in addition to that, there's some sound happening. Um, Sound happening in this sort of like uh, 360 degree space and things kind of happening in different like sonic locations. Um, But yeah, I think you covered most of it. It was cool being in there and, and seeing how the the visuals and the audio matched up in different ways. My favorite part of the installation is seeing the caterpillar and the sounds that are coming through, like the and also like the the metronome too. And it's like I'm seeing this caterpillar, and there's scenes of like a butterfly. I'm kind of like self-reflecting on like time, like because it goes quickly. And um, my question is, what are you proudest of in your installation? I don't know if this is like necessarily for me to be proud of, but I just find the like the colors so beautiful. The colors are so beautiful. And then also just as like uh, for me, the thing that I'm also proud of is just like the fact that we have something in a gallery somewhere. <laughs> I, I like mentioned this to Winnie, like sort of half jokingly, half not jokingly, but it's kind of like a dream come true to see like, you know, those black letters on the white wall and stuff like that's pretty awesome, you know? Not everybody gets to do that. Especially, like, when you think of the whole, like, the whole context of your being, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm just this person from this border town, and, like, you know, like, my my band name's on this wall here, you know? And I mean, it's hard not to be proud of that, you know? And I, I, uh, I know that Sundash feels pretty similar, too. I think it's just like easy to be dismissive of all like the work, you know, all the output and stuff. And so much of it, we're like hitting our heads against the walls and asking ourselves like, is this good or is this whatever, you know, is this up to par? And I mean, yeah, that stuff's important, but maybe sometimes it also just doesn't matter, you know, (laughs) maybe the important part is the doing, Hmm. you know, and like to do and then to see the installation in a gallery. It's like, Hell yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All that work paid off. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I I I I feel also that it's just like the this result of this like a pretty long period of time of of trying to work out ideas and maybe the thing that 
yeah, I feel I feel really satisfied that it's there is a level of abstraction or there's a level of openness that I've talked to people that have had really different reactions of what they're what they're what they're seeing, what they're interpreting, what they're responding to, what pulls them away and that it's not something that has a really kind of finite like this is what this piece is about that I feel like this collaboration for I mean for me it just it allowed like a new way of working that I would not have been possible if we hadn't um, if we hadn't done this together and so yeah I feel really proud of that And speaking of like, um, like when you go in, you sit down. What inspired for it to be like a sit down and watch it through these TVs, as opposed to like, like a like an installation where it's like you, it's physically there and you you kind of interact with it, or a different way to experience the the installation. Yeah, I mean, I have a little bit of a corny sense of humor, so maybe it was like the waiting bench. Yeah, you're gonna have to wait, <laughs> sit at the waiting bench. That's the truth. Um, but then <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> I mean, you know, some people actually, when you asked earlier about like what were some people's reactions, a couple people were like, "Oh, I could see the humor. I could see your sense of humor," and I was like, "Yes," because most of the time nobody gets my jokes. But um, <laughs> but so I think there was. There was just this thing of like, yeah, what what does it mean to have this like waiting bench? And also those, I don't want to watch a video if I can't sit down for very long. So I think sometimes I'll walk into, especially in a gallery space, like it can feel really uncomfortable to just stand there and then there's other people around you. And then, you know, I'll spend 30 seconds in front of this video and then, you know, walk along. So it was just what could be a little bit more of an invitation to sit back and I mean, some people watched the loop multiple times at that opening, and that was really, I mean, that's the best response I could have asked for or wished for. And then I guess instead of having it as projections, like having it on the TVs was also maybe kind of corny, but um, to make it a little bit, uh, I wanted it to be an object, and then thinking about this relationship to like painting with still life and these easel stands that... Um, I mean, they're kind of strange. It makes the televisions feel kind of strange too, like they're their own kind of bodies in the space, um, rather than kind of defaulting to a big projection, which always seems like the the first answer. But yeah, it's kind of it's like it's a very like frontal kind of theatrical uh, positioning of it, and then with the lighting too, like wanted to have that lighting so that then. Your your spot lit when you sit at that bench. I don't I don't know if this was intentional too, but there was something nice about just having the three seats too, because then it was kind of like it was also limited in the like the amount of people that you could have there watching it with you, you know. So I thought that was really interesting too, you know. And you have to decide uh, like, are you going to sit next to somebody right. on the bench, or do you leave the middle seat open? Right. Do you stand in the back or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Whitney, I saw on your website. Um, you've done still life art in your past works. What first drew you into that genre? 
So the first time I worked with it was a project at the San Francisco Memorial Building. And it was for an exhibition that they wanted. It was veterans and people who were somehow connected to the military. And that building houses both arts organizations and then veterans groups. Um, I wanted to do something site-specific and started just hanging out in that building. And there was these two stairways Like you go up the stairwell and there was these stained glass windows in the building and they're really problem. They're still there. They're really problematic. I mean, there's a, there's an image of the Spanish American war that's depicted by a naked woman on her knees with her arms outstretched. There's another image of an atom and it says for the Navy who gave us the fighting tools for world war II. So it's a glorification of nuclear weapons, but then there was an empty alcove And I wanted to do something in this empty alcove. And so it's a proposal for a stained glass window there. And I knew I couldn't get away with saying the things that I wanted to say. And so then um, still life became this kind of foil of using this symbolic language. But with that project, it was just looking at what are the civilian impacts of war. And each flower in the composition relates to a nation that has been a site of U.S. military interventions. Uh, And it's just thinking, too, of how many people have not only how many military members have died or, you know, have PTSD or all these 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 problems for U.S. military, but then also how does it affect people who are civilians? So that was the first kind of still life thing. And then the second one was um, similar to that. So at the San Diego airport, they asked me to do an installation and it was at the same time that the Muslim travel bans were happening. And so it was also using still life as a way to kind of get away with saying something that never would have been approved. And so each flower in that composition represented a nation that also, or, you know, people who are not able to come in because of those like political uh, situation. And then it also just seemed, seemed to make sense at a place that's obviously has on the border, um, who can come in, who's, you know, who can't, what's, what are those kind of things of privilege, but it's, if you say you're going to do something with flowers, like people are like, sure, do it. <laughs> Looks good, yeah. And so I think it it was that thing of like when I – they didn't even ask what it was about. It was just like, here's the mock-up. It's flowers. Looks like wallpaper. Yeah. So it was like using still life as a way to try to talk about other things. Whitney, in your artist bio, it says your work reframes familiar narratives, questioning issues of perception and the mutability of meaning. How did you get to a point where you wanted to tackle these ideas in your art? I don't think there's one moment, there was not one place where I said, oh yeah, this is, this is it. This is what I want to do with the work. But I think, uh, it is like, what's, what's that challenge of how can I look at something that I've seen, I don't even know how many times and like try to find a new way of understanding it or not understanding. I think maybe... Maybe I'm more interested in not understanding than understanding and that I think art can be a really good tool for that. And that's maybe one of the things that I have appreciated so much about working with Jonathan Sandish is the ways that they're also challenging me to relook at how I approach art, which I always kind of I don't want to be so illustrative with my work where I have this concept and then I'm just trying to find um, some way to visually illustrate something that maybe would be better as you know a piece of writing or a conversation. 
Uh, and I think that with the kind of music and sounds that they make, it's really, yeah, it's about experience. It's about your body. It's about like relationships of audience and yeah, a different kind of way of both knowing and not knowing. In the installation description, it also talked about how the piece in, in still life, it has some of its roots in um, 17th century uh, Dutch culture and how some of that was, some of the things that they painted were, were things that they stole from colonial times. And that reminds me of your artist bio too. Could you speak more on that in the installation? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things with um, looking at still life, I mean, I think initially when I was using it, I was looking at, um, you know, how it uses the symbolic language and the potential of that. But when you're looking at the history of still life as a genre and specifically in painting, so the so-called Dutch golden age was only possible because of what was being, you know, stolen from all over the world. And, you know, the repercussions of that colonization are still felt today. And so I think there was something of uh, wanting to acknowledge that it's not, when we go, there's all these hidden histories that are, you know, lurking behind the surface of these still life paintings that might seem like they're really like banal, if anything, like, oh, a bunch of flowers, some fruit on the table, like maybe you get a skull once in a while. And it's like, <laughs> that's the, <laughs> that's the epic moment. Um, but all of it was uh, like, where'd that stuff come from? And, um, you know, what is it, what did it mean that, that, uh, there was like a new Dutch middle class that wanted to show off these, you know, exotic luxury items. Um, and yeah, like I think there's, it's not something that's like super explicit in the installation, but I, I do hope that there's these kind of moments of, I mean, I think there's like moments of um, implied violence uh, within the video that I, that I think definitely relates to this, this history of still life. Mm -hmm. That abruptness of like, pulling the mm -hmm. the tablecloth yeah yeah for sure yeah and I think some of like there's like a kind of like an aggressive approach to the drums at certain moments that um, I appreciate yeah What are some lessons that you took away from making Time Kills? I mean, I think for me it's to loosen up and have trust. I mean, I think the process of it was a big lesson for me. I think kind of similarly for, for myself, too, is kind of just trusting the process. You know, we did this over a course of how long? Maybe like a year or so? And... I don't know that I've ever been a part of a project that had that much time to work on something. So it was like learning how to be patient with that, um, within that year, within the process of the project, I think was somewhat challenging for me because I'm, the, I'm at least in my process, I'm the kind of person who will think about it for a long time. But then when it comes to the doing, I hash out the doing in, you know, a few hours or, or, or we'll just like, crank it all out 
like in a condensed amount of time or something. Um, and this was kind of the opposite. And it was trusting that process and trusting, like in a way, trusting what I had to offer as as a collaborative artist on this project. Um, we did like some of the shooting with the instruments and all that stuff. And again, it was like, at some point, I was thinking to myself, like, I haven't done anything for this project. You know, I haven't contributed very much. And and at this point, I hadn't I hadn't worked with the sound outside of the the visuals, you know, like the drums, the all the sounds that are in the visuals. So it was kind of like learning to be okay with that, to just like accept like, well, maybe those contributions are enough, you know, they are enough. And you know, part of it that is like my ego getting in the way. So it's like learning how to deal with that and you know, like not get to a bad space or headspace or something. But yeah, and then as the project unfolded, I mean, the rest of it pretty much fell into place. You know, all the cuts were done and there was still a little bit of more sound to be done. And then that ended up happening. So it was just like, yeah, learning to be okay with the with the process, you know. So. Yeah, and I guess maybe in terms of things learned too, I mean, I, I learned that I want to collaborate a lot more with Till the <laughs> Um, yes. and we're going to, yeah. uh, we have something coming up at freeway park. Let's go. Yeah. So, um, that's, that's coming. Yeah. But I think, I mean, collaborations don't have to be 50, 50, like it can just be like working with somebody else and like maybe your contribution is less, maybe somebody else is kind of taking over, you know, depending on what their area of, uh, expertises of um, or what the project needs for that that particular moment. I mean, I, you know, the thinking too of like maybe we will work together in just these kind of varying capacities. But the same thing for me though with having a project that drags out for, I just said drags out. That makes it sound very negative. But um, I think. Yeah, it was extended. And so sometimes you lose steam of where like you initially got excited about an idea and then you sort of think about it so much in your head that now you're like, oh, I don't know, do I even need to finish this thing? And I'm a procrastinator. I really need like a push of a deadline, like an, a looming deadline to get anything done or else I just kind of like push things around <laughs> as long as possible. And so, but there was a pretty consistent um, thing of, well... Just like just play in front of the camera, see what happens. Get footage, get footage, get footage, get footage. And I think having a longer amount of time allowed for, I mean, it's definitely a different project than it would have been if um, we just cranked it out and um, when we first talked. For sure, and kind of staying like on the theme of like self reflection. Um, do you have any advice for up and coming artists? Do it. Yeah. Do it. The thing that you're thinking about doing, do it. No matter what uh, the materials you have around you, like no matter what resources, no matter, yeah, just do it. Find a way to do it. And I know that sounds kind of like generic, but I don't know if this happens for everybody's like medium or discipline or whatever, but I know that like at some points I've gotten hung up on like, ah, well, I don't have that thing that I need to make the thing that I want to make or that I envision, you know, I've realized that so many of the things that I've made that I'm most proud of have nothing to do with the materials, you know, and I just think it's so easy to get caught up on that or like, you know, capitalism or, or, whether it's the institution, they'll convince you that you need to have these 
resources or that you have to do things a certain way or to make sure that it looks a certain way in order to, you know, make it whatever presentable in a gallery or make it to a, to a certain standard or something like that, you know? And, uh, yeah. And I mean, as, as somebody who has spent time in like a lot of DIY scenes and the institution and school and stuff, like I've seen a lot of people not pursue the things that they want to do for those reasons, you know? And I just, it's just such a shame, you know what I mean? Because those are things not being created, you know what I mean? And who knows, one of those things to be created could be like a really meaningful experience for someone, you know? Yeah, I would just... I'm just going to echo everything you said. I mean, I think, yeah, it's how do you, how do you, how do you get your work out there? And I mean, if you're an artist, there's no choice. It's like you have to do this thing, and you know, it's not a question of if. It's just, yeah, I think like you said, like just do it. And so, to not be afraid that, to not need approval, though. I mean, that's the biggest thing. Is like you don't have to have somebody else tell you that you're an artist or that you're a good artist or anything else. It's like, what are you committed to, and what do you have to get out there? And then eventually, you're gonna find your people that are gonna respond to to what you're doing. Time Kills by Whitney Lynn and Till the Teeth with Barry Olusigan Noble Dispensa, Sarah Torres, Swaleha Masude, and Tiffany Ashton Gatsby was created through the Jack Straw New Media Gallery Residency Program. Podcast interviewer and producer is Carlos Nieto. Engineer is Daniel Gunther. The Jack Straw Residency Programs are made possible with support from the Seattle Office of Arts and Culture for Culture Washington State Arts Commission, the U-District Partnership, National Endowment for the Arts, Rainier Institute and Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. To learn more about our arts programs and hear more podcasts, visit us at jackstraw.org.